This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show for the monthly segment that she spends with us, State Representative from the 1st Hampshire Districts, so Lindsay Sabadosa. Representative Sabadosa, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We really appreciate your time. I'd like to start, if I might, by asking you about a story with a teaser front page of the Republican newspaper. On the front page, under today's must-reads, for the first one, Baker, colon, quote, not guilty, end quote, on tax relief failure. Governor Charlie Baker pleaded, quote, not guilty to withholding financial information from Beacon Hill lawmakers in early May that ultimately scrambled their plans to deliver $1 billion, with a B, dollars in tax relief to cash-strapped base staters at the end of the formal legislative session earlier this month. I confessed I find this story confusing. I don't understand what the $1 billion is. I don't understand the previous reports about $3 billion, but the $3 billion seems to have disappeared. And I don't know if the $1 billion actually makes any significant difference to any taxpayers. And I completely don't understand, having read the story, even having read the story, what is going on here? So help, (laughs) help, help. What is going on here? Well, first of all, good morning. I'm glad to be starting off on this topic because it's certainly one that has generated a lot of confusion amongst uh, amongst constituents who have been writing, trying to figure out what this means for them. Oh, good. I feel better. I am not alone. Okay. You are not alone, no. And this all goes back to the economic development bond bill that was passed in the House and the Senate, but we didn't get the conference report. So people will remember that the House votes on a bill, the Senate votes on a bill, and if the bills are not exactly the same, we put together a committee to try to iron out the differences. So we were getting towards the July 31st end date, trying to work out the differences in that bill, And then the governor said, wait a second, you remember that we might have to return $3 billion to taxpayers because revenues have exceeded expectations this year. And that has triggered a law passed by the voters in 1986, right? And a lot of people looked around and said, no, this is the first time we've heard of that. And so that $3 billion that the governor said, hey, we might have to return some money threw into flux everything the legislature was doing. Because in the economic development bill, we had already said we want to send money back to the taxpayers. It wasn't going to be $3 billion. It was going to be around, I think, $500 million, But money was going to be going back. And in addition to that money that was going back in the form of, of rebates, there was also going to be a whole series of tax breaks because and Bill, we've talked about this a lot on your show, Massachusetts has a flat tax rate. So it's very hard for us to make our taxes progressive, which means people who make who make more pay more, people who make less pay less. It's very hard to get that because we have that flat rate. So we were trying to include all these tax breaks in the economic development bill for people with children, for senior citizens, um, for renters, in order to make it a little easier for the people who are struggling the most to get by. But when the governor, again, days before the July 31st deadline said, by the way, we might be sending $3 billion back, it became a real problem because we have about $5 billion to spend. The economic development bond bill was around $4 billion. I'm just going to make it round numbers. It's not quite exactly. There's a little bit more detail. And then the governor said, 
we're going to need to send back $3 billion. So if we had passed the bill and ended up having to send back $3 billion in addition, we would have been in the hole, which is not where you want to be at a moment where all of these revenues are coming into the state and we have a good financial picture. I see you want to say something, so interrupt. <laughs> no, 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 no. Please, please, please go on. Uh, you have a, a few balls in the air here, uh, the three billion, yes. the one billion. So just juggle them down and make them all come neatly down into your hands into one neat pile of, are we getting the money? And how much? So, well, so that that is the part that remains to be seen. And this is the reason the economic development bond bill has not yet passed. Because while the governor said, hey, we think it's $3 billion, he didn't really know if it was $3 billion because a lot of reporting has to happen. So first, the Department of Revenue came out and said, we actually think the number is closer to $1.9 billion. So that's a pretty big difference, $3 billion to $1.9. At the end of the day, the auditor, and you are going to be voting for the next auditor on your ballots this fall, the auditor gets to, to say, what is the final number? And we won't have that report till about September 20th. So when the auditor comes out with that report, we will know how much we have to send back to voters, to, to people in this tax refund that was passed in this 1986 law. And that will let us know how much money we have to do other things. So how much money we will be able to provide with tax breaks, how much we'll be able to spend, because the economic development bond bill was not just a bill about tax breaks and, and sending rebates back. It was a bill that included a lot of money for, for hospitals, for, um, I'm blanking on all the other great things that the bill did, but uh, for communities, for your municipality, for your schools, it had money for all of those things in there. Really, just how do we recover from the pandemic? That money was all in the bill. Um, and so we are in a little bit of a wait and see moment. And what uh, I think a lot of people are trying to understand is if there are parts of the bill we can do right now. So one of the issues I'm getting a lot of emails about um, is that there were the raises for, for unions, for staff at UMass Amherst. And these are people who have been waiting for those raises for a long time. Can we do that portion of the bill now while we figure out these big numbers? Are taxpayers getting back 3 billion, 1.9 billion, or amounts set by the auditor? And those are the questions that we're still grappling with. So I know that um, I've heard a lot in the media of like, oh, the legislature isn't doing anything. They're not in session. And the legislature is doing a lot and every day is trying to answer these questions. Okay. Could you go back just for one second and clarify for me? And I apologize yes. if you've already actually explained this, but I'm still a little unclear. The 1986 law, what does it say? Do we think it's a good thing? And are we... Is the legislature going to keep it? Well, I mean, I, I guess I would say personally, I, I don't think it's a great thing because what happens is when we have a certain amount of revenue come in, come into the, the coffers, there's a percentage that has to go back to voters. And it's, it's not, uh, or to taxpayers, I guess is the better way to say it. And it's not really dependent upon how much you make. It's a, it's a flat amount that goes back. It's something that you, in 1987, the only time it's ever been triggered, it's something that you had to claim on your next tax return. So interestingly, it looks like back in 1987, most people didn't even ask for the money back because they didn't know that they could. Um, so, it's, it seems 
tricky right now to understand what this will look like in a world where now we e-file and um, there may be other considerations, but it, it is a, it does seem to be a pretty regressive tax rebate. And I don't think in 1986, when people were trying to, you know, get money back from state government and lower their taxes, they ever thought we would have lived through a pandemic like we just did, and that there would have been all of this federal money coming in as well. And I know personally, that's something that I think we need to understand a little bit better. It's one thing to say, I paid a lot of taxes, the state didn't need all of that, and now I want my money back. Um, it's totally different to say the federal government gave us extra money and so now it's triggered this law and we're going to give money back rather than do the many things that you know we could do. I, I hate to to mention this because I think you know most people in Western Massachusetts get frustrated, but you know we are at a moment right now where the T the, the is shut down in Boston. <laughs> um, yeah, the is, orange <laughs> line is taking a 30 day uh, uh, hiatus. It's, it's not just deciding to go on vacation. It's getting a rehab. <laughs> Everybody loves to do invest in infrastructure until it comes time to actually shut something down to fix it. <laughs> right. And I mean, the train's caught on fire and there are advisories to not visit the region because traffic is going to be so intense. So, you know, I, I guess I have a hard time hearing, well, it was money the state doesn't need because, oh, dear Lord, we, we do need that money and we need it in so many ways. So we can really leverage our investments by investing in transportation. You know, we talk about in Western Massachusetts, the lack of public transportation. We talk about East West Rail, all these things that we want to put money into. And yet we're not going to be able to do that if we are constantly stymied by, oh, but we might have to send, you know, money back to people. A $500 check can make a huge difference for so many people's lives. And the people that will be affected the most will not be getting this uh, this money because it, it's not um, refundable. So if you don't file returns, you don't get it. This is really going um, very just right across the board to all kinds of people who, who may or may not benefit. And it takes away the state's ability to use that money for public good. Um, and when we talk about the things that we want to fund, this refund you know, would is is detrimental to that quite honestly is the state going to send a check um or is this something that is triggered by the filing of a tax return and then if you have overpaid or you're entitled with this rebate to get a check back then the state will send it to us and is five hundred dollars is that the amount so that's one of the amounts that people have talked about. They've also talked about 750. There's been some debate as to what the amount would be. And I, re I am so sorry, Bill, because I want to answer your question as directly as possible. But the governor has also talked about changing the way these checks might go out. And then there's a question of the constitutionality of that. But effectively, the way it should happen is that you file your tax returns for the next year and you can claim that this money back on your returns. The governor has said, I don't want that to happen. I just want to send checks to everybody before I leave office in December. I don't know if that can happen or not. And I thought this was a pretty simple question. Are we getting uh, money back? Yes, <laughs> no. Question two, how much? <laughs> it's, never, it's never simple. I guess. Uh, listen, let's go, can we go ahead and spend a minute on this? Uh, the next story uh, in the Republican front page today, MGA, MGM anticipates speedy launch to sports betting. 
Is the legislature uh, feeling good about sports betting? How do you feel about this coming to Western Massachusetts and the and the resolution of this, which was, as I understand it, there'll be widespread sports betting legalized and now legal in Massachusetts, with some exceptions for Massachusetts uh, collegiate teams, except when they're in really important games. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was the that was the compromise around sports betting. Um, you know, there was a, a lot of pushback to not include college-age students because of, frankly, because of public health reasons. But I think at the end of the day, people felt that if you didn't include the students, at least in these important games, then no one was going to want to bet. And there does seem to be a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, people who are very much looking forward to placing those initial bets when the regulations come through and they're able to do so. So, um, you know, we, we'll see what happens. I, I think that we are one of the few states in New England that didn't have sports betting and it will put us in line with other states. I will personally say I have, I have lots of concerns that we've not necessarily gone as far as we could to protect people. Um, but this is, this is the, the way we're moving. And will the sports betting have to take place at a casino or will we be able to do it or people who wish to participate be able to do it uh, at local stores the way they can buy or we can buy uh, 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 tickets uh, uh, and play play the various kind of uh, gambling games that are available or is it all going to go to MGM Springfield? Initially, it is supposed to be within brick and mortar uh, casinos, although I will wait for the regulations to come out to understand fully what this is going to look like. Okay, we are speaking with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. State Representative will be back with us in just a minute after these announcements because I want to talk to her about something. This is actually really good news. The legislature accomplished a lot this session, and we're going to hear what that, what that has been. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Minutemen football lives here. Olsen lofts it. Josiah Johnson, end zone, touchdown, Massachusetts. Daylight, end zone, touchdown, Ellis Merriweather from eight yards out. Follow the action all season long on your home for Minutemen football. The UMass Sports Network from Learfield. Touchdown, Massachusetts. Ace flips burgers at her day job as she tries to outrun the shadows of the past she shares with her dad, who spends his days watching game shows from his lawn chair on the moon. Chester Theatre Company presents To the Moon and Back, a world premiere starring Tara Franklin and Ray Burke as a daughter and father with a history as murky as the dark side of the moon. To the Moon and Back, through August 21st at Chester Theatre Company. Get tickets now at chestertheatre.org. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. 
Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. At the Northampton Survival Center, we believe that no one should choose between paying bills or buying food. En el Northampton Survival Center, creemos que nadie debería elegir entre pagar sus cuentas o comprar alimentos. We supply free groceries for people in 18 Hampshire County communities in a safe outdoor distribution. Proveemos comestibles gratis a personas en 18 comunidades del condado de Hampshire en una distribución segura y al aire libre. For information about grocery pickup or delivery, call 413-586-6564 or visit northamptonsurvival.org. Para información sobre recogida o entrega de comestibles, llame al 413-586-6564 o visítenos en northamptonsurvival.org. If the challenges of the past year have left you needing help, we are here for you. Si las dificultades del año pasado lo han llevado a necesitar ayuda, estamos aquí para usted. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative from the 1st Hampshire District. Rep. Sabadosa, we were talking during the break, and we're going to get to, in just a minute to this uh, big, big uh, uh, question I have, which is the accomplishments of the legislature in the last session, which are, I think, really significant. But one last time around with feeling on this question of the one billion, the one point nine billion, the three billion, raising the issue. Are you going back into session? Because the session ended, and we're also hearing, well, the legislature is going back to work. You're now in informal session, which requires unanimity in order for anything to pass. Uh, these are contentious bills, I would suspect. So, are you going back to Boston in the anytime soon? You, I mean, the legislature. <laughs> Me personally, yes. Uh, the legislature, I, you know, I think that it would be hard for us not to. And this is really just me opining. This is not based on, you know, information that I have been given secretly by anyone. But I do think that if we are unable to find uh, unanimous consent around some of these pieces, it is really important for us to go back. There will be a lot that we can do in informal session. Again, the bill has passed the House, the bill has passed the Senate. That does mean that people are in favor um, of this piece of legislation. But when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of how much money is going out the door in rebates, I don't know that we will have unanimous consent and then it does in fact behoove us to go into formal session and to make sure that we get this done because people deserve that. So formal session, people wear their best business attire and go back to the to Beacon Hill. Tuxedos huh? only. <laughs> How does that work? Ball, ball gowns. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Done July 31st. I'm not sure any of us were in our best formal attire anymore. We were just trying to, to keep our eyes open. But um, but I do think that uh, formal session is where we can take on the record votes, where there are our roll calls so you can see how everyone votes. And they are necessary uh, for spending bills. So depending on what we are voting on, um, it may the Constitution may require a roll call vote, which means that we will have to be there. Which would be, happen sometime, I take it, between the primaries and the general election? I would think so. I, I think that it's very difficult. First of all, the auditor's report isn't coming out until, again, September 20th. And the primary for those, all the listeners who are going to go vote in the primary is September 6th. So uh, I can't imagine it would be before the primary. Sometime between the primary and the general seems to make sense. But it really does uh, depend on how fast things can be ironed out. Well, going back to what uh, Monty and you just mentioned, which was the legislative session on the at the last day of July, it was a day that, as I recall, had about thirty six hours, according to the July thirty second. Okay, but you got a lot done, and I think that in the stories about how is this any way to uh, run a ship, um, nonetheless, a lot has been accomplished. So. Looking back at this legislative session, in, including those last hectic days, including the last one, which had 36 hours, give or take, um, what, do you, what do you look back and say, hey, we got a lot done. Here's what I'm proudest of. Oh, well, I think um, I was going to say top three bills, and then all of a sudden I was like, no, you can't leave out those other ones. So I think um, I'm just going to go through a little bit of a list. In the last few days of session, you know, some of the things that we accomplished were passing a mental health care bill, which, you know, has really been viewed as a model for the nation. Um, we are supporting 988, which, if listeners don't know, is the new number that you can call uh, for for mental health crises. Um, we are working to support our, our children and our schools um, and to really use this vehicle to to address some of the, the longstanding mental health issues that the state hasn't grappled with, but also to, to again, pull ourselves out of the pandemic. So that was a, a huge piece of legislation that, that passed in the final final hours of, of our last formal session. Um, personally, I'm really grateful to see that we passed a cannabis reform bill um, that works to actually provide social equity funds to social equity applicants. I'm grateful for that piece of legislation because I, I'm on that committee and we crisscrossed the state talking to people about what we needed to change and how we needed to improve and protect the industry. And so that was uh, was just kind of amazing to see to see happen because you see pieces of the bill and you hear the stories of your constituents, and that is always, I think, the best piece of, of legislation where you know that line is because, you know, Joe came up to me and said this needed to happen, and we put it in the bill. Um, so that one was was huge. Uh, the environmental bill that we passed, um, I think a lot of us were very nervous getting towards the end of session that that wasn't going to happen. And then President Biden showed up, and all of a sudden there was renewed energy to get this really mammoth bill across the finish line. And that one was was more difficult because if you recall on the House side, we had a much narrower piece of legislation. We'd only focused on offshore wind. The Senate had taken it in bigger directions. They'd included solar, they'd included provisions against biomass. They had done a lot more. And so reconciling those bills was extremely 
extremely difficult because they were so different. Um, and yet we managed to get that done. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an enormous accomplishment. And to have that happen while you also have the federal government passing, I think maybe the first piece of climate legislation they've passed in, in a decade was um, was an important step forward for, for I think, the nation. Um, of course, also very close to my heart is the um, was the abortion rights bill that we passed and you know, two major pieces of legislation that I filed two of my three priorities managed to pass this session um, one being the requirement for public college campuses to offer medication abortion and the other was the elimination of cost sharing for abortion and abortion related care um, for everyone and uh, the elimination of all cost sharing for pregnancy related care for mass health patients. And, you know, those are things we didn't think would happen. We did not think we could get insurance companies on board with that. And yet, um, and yet it did. And again, when, when I say that work is driven by constituents, that work came directly from working with the Abortion Rights Fund of Western Massachusetts and understanding the need for it. So um, that bill is is one that I'm going to be hanging on my office wall. Uh, you can all come and see it. And uh, and then of course the transportation bond bill, where we have we now have a commission uh, to look at east-west rail and improving rail in Western Massachusetts. I said earlier in the program how the tea is on fire, but we don't have a tea. We don't have a train. Um, we have the Valley Flyer, but we need to support it, um, make it affordable, accessible, and this uh, commission will be doing that work. And I think those are, are huge pieces. And I guess finally, no, I'm sorry, I have to, I have to say two more. But um, we talked about the September 6th primary. We we passed a voting rights bill. Their vote by mail is now permanent. Um, there are there's early voting. There's there's a lot there to um, to move Massachusetts forward and make sure that people can access the ballot. And that is that makes us stand out from, I think, many states in this country that are trying to do the opposite. And the last bill I will say, and I, I want to say this because there's uh, a lot happening um, in terms of trying to push back against this bill, was the Work and Family Mobility Act. So I, I've talked to you and on this program about that bill many times, and that is the bill that gives extends licenses to immigrants irrespective of their, their immigration status. And I bring that one up last because uh, I think it was just yesterday that there's a movement trying to repeal that bill, and they're trying to get on the ballot in November. November, um, and they're trying to use a lot of scare tactics to say that this bill would would be dangerous and, and would make our roads less safe, which we know from mountains of testimony is untrue. Um, we are now one of 17 states that have done this, and it would be really a shame, I think, for the voters to, to take that away from the immigrant community that has worked so hard and been such amazing advocates uh, to move this forward via the ballot. As I read the news reports this morning, the ballot question to uh, repeal that law, that progressive law, has not yet been certified. The signatures have not yet been certified, but at least by my reading of the reports this morning, it looks as if that might well get on the ballot. So that will be an enormous fight um, to try to preserve that progressive legislation. One last question on this for you, Representative Sabadosa. You mentioned the Voting Rights Bill, uh, yes. the work, uh, work and Family Mobility Act, which we were just talking about, the Transportation Bond Bill, the Environmental Bill, the Cannabis Reform Bill, the Social Equity Component, uh, the Mental Health Care Bill, the Abortion Rights Bill, of course, uh, to protect uh, reproductive choice here in Massachusetts and those who come to Massachusetts to exercise that right. That's an enormous number 
of real of legislative accomplishments and the question is are they now law are all those bills now law has governor baker signed them I'm, I'm taking a beat so that I make sure I don't misspeak. I believe that everything I have mentioned is now law. There is a small part of the transportation bond bill that the governor amended and sent back to the legislature. It involves um, MBTA governance, um, but for the most part, and I'm just trying to make sure I didn't, I'm not misspeaking, but for the most part, yes, everything I have mentioned, apart from that transportation bond bill segment around MBTA, um, is now law. Yes. We're going to leave it on that optimistic note. State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative from the 1st Hampshire District, is with us every month. We really appreciate your time and your represent representation. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's supercalifragilistic. Lindsay Sabadosa. Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Northampton man who allegedly killed his roommate last month will be in Hampshire Superior Court today. 24-year-old Devin Bryden is being arraigned on four charges, including murder. He has been held without bail since his arraignment on July 11th, where he pleaded not guilty to stabbing Jenna Abramowitz to death in the apartment they shared, a supportive housing unit run by Dial South Youth and Community Services. The owners of Tavern on the Hill in East Hampton are vowing they will be back. A late night fire on August 12th caused extensive damage, but luckily all the employees had gone home and no one was hurt. The current estimate for reopening is three months. A joint investigation between East Hampton Fire Department and state police fire investigators assigned to the state fire marshal's office has determined that the fire was caused accidentally. Congressman Jim McGovern wrapped up a two-day tour of over a dozen farms in western and central Mass. Touring farms from Orange to Waitley and Greenfield, McGovern said he heard the struggles farmers face regarding climate change and the uncertain economic forces at play today. Agriculture is an important part of our economy, but, you know, just as importantly, food that is grown locally and grown and raised in a responsible manner deserves our support. Congressman McGovern sits on the Agriculture Committee in Congress and says the upcoming agriculture bill, which will dole out billions in farm subsidies, should be used to support the kind of sustainable, locally focused farming he sees in the valley. Mostly sunny, breezy today, warm with a high of 86 to 90. Variable clouds tonight, overnight low 56 to 62. Sun cloud mix for tomorrow, chance for an afternoon shower, a high of 86 to 90. Mid 80s and a sun cloud mix on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden promulgó el proyecto de ley de cambio climático y atención médica histórico de los demócratas el martes, entregando lo que llamó la pieza final de su agenda nacional reducida, ya que apunta a mejorar la posición de su partido entre los votantes en menos de tres meses antes de las elecciones intermedias. La legislación incluye la inversión federal más sustancial en la historia para combatir el cambio climático, unos 375 mil millones de dólares durante la década, y limitaría los costos de los medicamentos 
créditos recetados a $2,000 anuales de bolsillo para los beneficiarios de Medicare. También ayudaría a aproximadamente 13 millones de estadounidenses a pagar el seguro de atención médica al extender los subsidios proporcionados durante la pandemia de coronavirus. La medida se paga con nuevos impuestos a las grandes empresas y una mayor aplicación del IRS a las personas y entidades adineradas con fondos adicionales destinados a reducir el déficit federal. En otras informaciones, a los distritos escolares de Massachusetts se les dijo el lunes que deberían enfocar sus estrategias de mitigación de COVID-19 hacia las personas vulnerables y sintomáticas este próximo año escolar, en lugar de implementar requisitos universales de uso de máscaras o pruebas de vigilancia de estudiantes y personal asintomáticos. El comisionado de Educación Jeff Riley y la comisionada de Salud Pública Margaret Cook distribuyeron un memorando el lunes diciéndoles a los distritos que el Estado no está recomendando requisitos universales de máscaras, pruebas de vigilancia de personas asintomáticas, rastreo de contactos o pruebas de permanencia en las escuelas y recordándoles que no existen requisitos de prueba o mascarillas en todo el estado. Riley dijo el lunes que está esperando que el año escolar vuelva lo más cerca posible de las normas previas a la pandemia. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And that, of course, is the walk-up music for NPR, Northampton Poetry Radio with erstwhile poet laureate Rich Michelson. However, we're not talking poetry today, although we do have Rich Michelson on the show with us. Rich, of course, is the founder, creator of R. Michelson Gallery. Also with us, we have Paul Goa, who is the gallery manager at R. Michelson Gallery, and Jose Baskin. So let's start with you, Rich. Gallery does have your name. Something really important, really significant, and I think quite memorable and beautiful is happening at the gallery. Tell us what, and then we're going to turn to Paul and to Jose. Rich. Yes. Well, thank you, Bill. It's uh, great to be back, especially good to be back long distance because I'm on the beach right now. <laughs> um, Don't rub it in. Which is even nicer. <laughs> rub the rub sunscreen in. in, though. So um, we are having an, a wonderful exhibit uh, at the gallery that just opened. Uh, we will have a reception on October, on September 9th. I think that's right. Is that right, Paul? That's right. September 9th. Yeah, okay. 6 to 8 p.m. Um, on September 9th, we are having an exhibition of Leonard Baskin's artwork. Uh, Leonard, of course, uh, is dear and near to all of us at the gallery. Uh, in many ways, he put us on the map when he agreed to show some of his work uh, at our gallery. And uh, just uh, four days ago uh, was the anniversary of Leonard's birth, the 100th anniversary of his birth and that is when our show opened on sunday and we are exhibiting an exhibition called baskin and politics an exhibition on the 100th anniversary of his birth and uh you know i often wonder uh, to myself uh, what leonard would be saying about these times and uh, that we are in here uh, would he have Uh, anticipated them in any way would any of us have uh, thought that we'd be in the situation we're in now i don't think so but in many ways leonard did uh, speak to these times as he spoke to his own times uh, you know uh, politically 
And so uh, the gallery, especially Paul Gullick, who's there, has gathered a, uh, a grouping of his work that comments on the politics of his time and also our time. It's, uh, it's prescient and it's a wonderful uh, show. I hope everybody can make it in. It will be on view through October 31st. And, uh, and really, uh, you know, come and see what Leonard's doing. Check out our website at rmichelson.com. And uh, this is an important show, I think, for the Valley. It's an important show for the world and certainly an important show for us. Let me turn to Paul Goa, who's the gallery manager at R. Michelson Gallery. Paul, could you, I know it's radio, not perhaps the perfect medium for this, but describe for us what some of these pieces are that will be, will be available for us to all see and appreciate? Sure. Well, we've taken works from the span of his career, very early works from the late 1940s all the way up until some of his last works. And we really wanted Which to- Which was when? Jose, when did your dad die? Died in 2000. And, and I, I think that politics was something that you could really see in every single part of his works from, from the early 40s, from the late 40s when he was influenced by Marxist ideals and he had woodcuts with capitalist eagles attacking the workers. And um, you know, there's a piece in the, in the room of, of miners' children, the, you know, dirty faces and, and you know, with a desolate landscape. And all the way to work uh, anti-war pieces. Yeah, he was, the Vietnam War pieces? Um, no? I think it was more general about the horrors of war. Um, you know, he, he, he would do, um, he did a piece in 1954 in response to the detonation of the hydrogen bomb called The Hydrogen Man um, about, you know, the new world that we're living in and the catastrophic consequences that, uh, that war brings us and, and who pays for it? Who's, who, who suffers the consequences of war? And what's the medium? Are, are these woodcuts? Are these paintings? Are they drawings? What, what are they? They really span the gambit from woodcuts to fine press books, watercolors, sculpture in wood and bronze. Uh, we, we really tried to get a good mix of everything that he's, he had done. And the, these pieces are, uh, available to be seen, obviously. Anyone can come to the gallery and have this wonderful experience. They're also available to be purchased? Oh, of course, of course. Le Leonard would be very upset if we had a 100th anniversary <laughs> show with nothing for sale. <laughs> no capitalist eagles tearing up his pieces here. Uh, he, he was, he, even when he was a Marxist, he was a staunch capitalist. <laughs> yes. Capitalism will rear its ugly head. Uh. <laughs> so, Hosey, I would appreciate it. Hosey, by the way, why don't you tell people what you do now? You, you, I, we, I think last time, well, one of the times we had you on the show, you were here in your capacity as a rare book uh, collector and seller. Uh, uh, I am dealer. a rare book dealer. I wear a couple of hats. Okay, I'm, so I'm a rare book dealer. Um, I'm also a trust and estate attorney focused on cultural property, so things like art and antiques and archives, um, making sure that cultural property doesn't end up in tag sales and, bump, and dumpsters, basically. Um, and a Baskin fact checker. And a Baskin fact checker. <laughs> Being a Baskin, a perfect person to be doing this. I know some of the facts, and some <laughs> I make up. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us this. What, what's it like for you to see this uh, 100th uh, anniversary show of, of Leonard's? Uh, how, how do you experience that? It's powerful. Um, it's... 
It's a strong show. It's it's nice to see the span of his work from from all phases of his career, and it's also nice to see a show that um, that ties things together in an interesting way. I mean, uh, political engagement was so much a part of his life and his work, um, from his you know uh, radical youth. Um, through anti-war work, through his uh, sort of in the middle of his career, his uh, connection with the history of what um, Native Americans had experienced in this country, which started when he was commissioned to do uh, artwork for the National Park Service for the what was then the Custer National Monument and is now the Little Bighorn National Monument. Um, and the the way in which that opened his eyes to a history that he had been oblivious to, um, his yeah his his anti war work he was you know he wasn't picky he was against pretty much every war uh, and uh, as a a World War Two vet he um, he felt very strongly that he had. Uh, he had some insights that that had given him into uh, the uglier nature of war and human contact, conduct. There's a piece of his, of your dad's, that I remember about uh, the Holocaust, which I think was significant, sig played a significant role in his art. Can you tell us played about that? He played a big role. Um, there was a close friend of his, an um, artist named Rico Lebrun, who was... Uh, lived most of his life in L.A. Uh, he was from Italy, but was an, was an expat, lived in America. And Rico was a, a comrade of Leonard's. Um, they were figurative artists at a moment when abstraction was dominant, and they felt that they were kindred spirits. And Rico said that any artist of their generation who does not address the Holocaust in some fashion is missing the essential human event of our time. Um, and Leonard struggled with that, because how can you uh, compete with the documentary evidence, the, the photographs of the camps? And towards the end of his life, he uh, came up with a, a series of big woodcuts, um, similar to ones that he had done in the 50s, but on addressing the Holocaust uh, that were... Uh, I think he felt like he finally was able to, in some way, address the horror uh, in an apt and suitable fashion. And those are amongst the hardest of his works to look at. Um, it's it's hard to imagine anybody in the gallery saying, oh, dear, that would look lovely in the breakfast nook. Um, but they are, they're important works. Um, and there's one I remember, I can't remember the caption exactly, but it says something like, you gave me a people, and you left me a remnant. Uh, you, Lord, you have chosen not a people, but a remnant. Um, he, all of these pieces had, um, he started writing um, sort of um, aphorisms, I guess you'd say. Um, and some of them are quite dark. Um, what are some of that? That was one. There's another one that is... Um, Wait, I'm blanking. Paul, can you remember some of the... the, the yeah, well, death, have you devoured enough of our children? There you go. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can't see it in Happy the breakfast. Not, not in the breakfast nook. No. <laughs> Definitely not in the breakfast <laughs> yeah. nook. But extremely powerful. Now listen, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to continue our conversation with Paul Goa and Jose Baskin and Rich Michelson. I want to talk about the press, the amazing press that he started. We're going to be right back. More on the uh, Leonard Baskin Memorial. What, how do we call this? The Leonard Baskin Retrospective? It's a 100-year anniversary um, uh, of his birth. We'll be right back. This I could not do. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. I took my gun and vanished. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 and Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. Picture perfect days in the valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots. Check out the new and expanded bar area, or dine outside on the patio. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday starting at 9 a.m. and serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And don't forget about Sunday brunch and live music every Thursday and Sunday. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. Manja. This shop Tuesday, it's Nini's Ristorante. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Nini's Ristorante will be releasing gift certificates for their restaurant in East Hampton. Nini's is an authentic Italian-American cuisine restaurant. Incredible Italian cannoli, pizza, pasta, seafood, and a full bar. Great for the family or for a date. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Capisce? Nini's Ristorante in East Hampton. Available this shop Tuesday, 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5-1400-1240. WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts is the region's largest hunger relief clearinghouse. They have been since 1982. They distribute fresh produce, including vegetables from 39 local farms, dairy, grains, and other nutritious foods to families and individuals facing hunger. The Food Bank is proud to partner with hundreds of food pantries, meal programs, and social service organizations to provide hunger relief in all four counties of Western Mass. Did you know that they also offer free SNAP outreach, helping anyone who needs support navigating the process of applying for federal food assistance. They also offer free bags of groceries through programs like the Mobile Food Bank, which hosts food distribution events at outdoor sites. Everyone is welcome to pick up food all year round. No ID or proof of need required. Learn more about the Food Bank at foodbankwma.org or by calling 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors in need have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with 
Jose Baskin and Paul Goa, who's the gallery manager at R. Michelson Gallery, and Rich Michelson. We were talking during the break, and we are here. We continue our conversation about this show uh, commemorating and celebrating the 100th anniversary, the 100th birthday of Leonard Baskin, a spectacular collection of his work. We were talking during the break about a number of pieces. Before we get to that, I wish you would share, any one of you would share, the story that you were just talking, telling us about with regard to Kurt Vonnegut. Well, I had mentioned that the Baskin story that, that Hosey mentioned about his father serving in World War II and then being so staunchly anti-war thereafter and coming up with art about it reminded me of Kurt Vonnegut and Slaughterhouse-Five in particular, and that Kurt Vonnegut was also here in the Valley, and I wondered if they had collaborated Lived, lived here in the Valley for yeah. a couple and years. Yeah, and Rich, you had an interesting story yeah. about that. Well, Kurt was, you know, a visual artist himself, um, and uh, he used to stop in the gallery uh, specifically to look at Baskin's work. Uh, I remember the first time he came in, uh, we were watching him walk around and stare at the Baskins, and, you know, I was wondering, do I approach him, tell him I know who he is, do I leave him alone and just let him look? Uh, but eventually... How'd you resolve that? Came, <laughs> What'd you do? <laughs> the, uh, sorry, missed that. <laughs> the the uh, eventually, eventually uh, we did have an exhibition of Kurt's work, and um, and the first thing he said to me when I uh, offered him an exhibit is, uh, "I'm a little I I don't know that I'm good enough to show in the same gallery that shows Leonard Baskin," and later when we did host the show, um, again he said, "I cannot believe." that I am showing in the same gallery with Leonard Baskin. It was a great honor for him. He was a fan of Baskin's work. It moved him greatly. And uh, and so Leonard, in a sense, created that contact between the gallery and Kurt, which and Kurt and myself, which was wonderful as well. During the break, we were also talking about the work, uh, Leonard Baskin's work regarding FDR. Um, so, Tell our listeners who don't know about that and haven't seen it what that is. How would you sure. want to do that? So, um, well, FDR said uh, before he died that he didn't want any memorial bigger than his desk. Um, after he died, of course, that was ignored. And uh, the process of creating the memorial went on for many decades. Um, the legislation was passed soon after he died, but the memorial wasn't actually... Uh, inaugurated until the 1990s. Um, it was designed by an amazing landscape architect named Richard Halperin. Um, and it incorporates the work of a number of different sculptors. And Leonard did a 30-foot long, 6-foot high uh, bas-relief uh, that shows Roosevelt's uh, funeral cortege, uh, the coffin draped being... Um, pulled by a team of horses with mourners walking in the street behind. Um, and um, it's, I think in many ways, it it's the sort of spiritual soul of the Roosevelt Memorial, which is an amazing structure. It's in D.C. in between the Jefferson Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial uh, along the Tidal Basin. This is actually, if I can jump in, this is actually uh, the 25th anniversary of the dedication. Uh, which was 1997, um, and uh, there are events happening around that. I will be doing a talk, uh, which uh, we will be listing on our website for the FDR Memorial Committee, um, and talking about Leonard's contribution. 
Uh, you can come into the gallery and see some of his watercolors uh, about that memorial, as well as a maquette about, which is uh, his model that he did for this uh, uh, funeral cortege. Uh, in fact, of life, uh, the uh, casket was being pulled by horses and it was roped off. People were on either side. Leonard would talk about how he took those um, ropes away and put the people to follow the cortege because he wanted to he wanted to incorporate the common person into the memorial. Uh, he said that Roosevelt was the only president he ever voted for who won and the last great president uh, that this nation has had. Uh, so uh, you know it's it's a great achievement. It's a great achievement. Uh, Jose and I both uh, went down for the dedication. Uh, we got to meet uh, the president, uh, Clinton at the time, and so many people. Uh, so uh, I think a great honor for Baskin, a great honor for the nation. We have just a minute left. Let me turn back to uh, Paul Goa, who is the gallery manager at R. Michelson Gallery. Tell us how and where and when we can see all of this work by Leonard Baskin. And I'd appreciate if you'd mentioned that some of his work about women, which I take it as part of this uh, exhibition as well. Yes. Well, the, the gallery is open seven days a week, and you can come at any time. It's up off, off of our mezzanine. It's on view now up until October 31st. Um, yeah. Well, Leonard, in the latter part of his career, um, did, focused on images of, of women, especially women who had not gotten their due in history. So you'll see a number of those pieces in the show as well. Okay. We're going to leave it there. Rich Michelson, Paul Gala. Josie Baskin, thank you all so very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and thank, thank you, you for doing this. And check out our website as well, rmichelson.com. You can see the show. You can add up the parts. You won't have the soul. You can strike up the march There is no drone Every heart The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2 only on WHMP Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin Counties GreenfieldSavings.com The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Booster, WHMB. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who the love them. The only live and local talk gift, in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.